Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm going to read just the first eight verses. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, last week, we were discussing hospitality, and we talked about the hospitality industry, uh, food service, hotels, and stuff. And I, and I said that what made hospitality difficult was people. Now, in fairness, not all people are equally difficult, but working in hospitality, I find, has a, has a draining effect. Uh, and because of that, I find that people who work in hospitality tend to become jaded, like I did. And uh, what started as a spark of joy at serving the public slowly degrades into a form of just permanent irritation. And uh, my brother and I made this discovery working at the deli. Both of us said that when we started there, we were like SpongeBob and we slowly became Squidward. <laughs> I started many years ahead of him, so I was further along that track when he arrived. But, uh, you know, when I started, I really enjoyed my job, and I don't think I realized how jaded I'd become until my brother started working there, and he was so chipper and enjoying himself, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? Um, and then you start to wonder, well, gee, what happened to me? Now, I know this is not unique to me. It's not unique to deli work either. You know, more seasoned waitresses, if you go to a diner and you have a gal, a gal that's been working there a long time, they have a reputation for brusqueness. It's all business, Right. And maybe when they started, it was like, you know, what can I get for you today? And then it becomes, what can I get you, hon? And then it becomes like, you know, you guys ready or what? You know, it was kind of like our waitress on Tuesday, right? Phil, it was a little like that. I won't say which waitress uh, and which diner. Um, but I, I think most of us are willing to tolerate even rude service if the food is good enough. Or at least if we're hungry enough. Uh, desperation means you will put up with a lot. 
This is a truth that was immortalized in the Seinfeld episode about the soup Nazi, right? Uh, It's a great episode. The the whole idea is that this restaurant owner, uh, he terrorizes his patrons, right? Uh, You have to order a certain way. You have to stand in a certain order, a certain spot, and don't upset the flow or create a fuss or anything like that. And it's kind of a horrible uh, experience, but the soup is so amazing that there's a line out the door every day, right? And, of course, George ends up messing the whole thing up by asking for bread, right? But anyway... (laughs) But this is true in real life, too, not just in TV. Uh, uh, Georgia and I had a favorite Indian restaurant, actually, in in State College when we were living up there, and we always received horrible service every time we went there. And they were always rude, they were always impatient, and they always made you feel like you had kind of ruined their night by walking in the door. And... um, one time we went in there, and I think there was maybe, maybe one other table was occupied, and they intentionally sat us at the only booth with a broken bench. <laughs> but you know what? The food was phenomenal, and so we always went back. We still would, you know? Uh, Pat's and Geno's operates on this model in Philadelphia. They've been doing the same thing for years. You know, Pat's, if you go there, they actually have a, line, a, a list in the front there explaining exactly how you properly order a cheesesteak, and if you screw up, you're supposed to go to the back of the line. That's that famous brotherly love we talked about last week. And yet there's the line. Both stands 24-7, right? So again, if the food is good enough, if the people are hungry enough, even the least hospitable restaurant in the world will still have customers because the food is worth the frustration. But the opposite is also true, I think, that the friendliest, most hospitable restaurant in the world will not survive if their food is terrible, right? I've been in a number of restaurants that I really wanted to like, but couldn't bring myself to, uh, where the ambiance was great and the staff was really friendly, but the food just wasn't that good and the servings were kind of small. And, you know, I went home hungry and disappointed, you know, with like wasted calories. Why did I do that? So service with a smile is not really worth much if you have nothing worth serving. I say all this because I think that to some extent the same logic uh, applies to the church. Uh, I made the case for hospitality last week, but hospitality is meaningless if we aren't serving a wholesome, substantive meal, right? And in the church, our meal consists of the word of God. That's the main course. Everything we do begins and ends with God's authoritative word. And if we don't have this, we have nothing. And that's why as we work our way backward now through the vision, we're ending today at the top of the vision, and and the top of our vision is being a biblical church, uh, because nothing else is going to matter if we aren't getting that right. I would rather us be rude and biblical than polite and unbiblical. Fortunately, we don't have to choose one or the other, but uh, it would be better to be the soup Nazi than to serve lousy food. We want people to come to our church, right, Uh, And we want them to feel welcomed by our love of strangers, but we want them to stay for the meal. Uh, If there's no meal, it's not a restaurant. Without the word, we're not the church. Now, if the word is the main main course in any legitimate church, but how the main course gets served makes a difference. I don't know about you, but when I eat out, the the best part of eating out is that someone else does all the work, right? That's kind of the point. Uh, The food is made in a kitchen that I don't have to clean or deal with. Uh, It's prepared and it's presented to me. It's going to taste good, I hope, right? It's going to be salty. That's what I came here for, right? I I eat. I go home. I'm satisfied. You know, it's not typical for restaurants to hand you raw ingredients and tell you to make it yourself. It's not a -a build-a-bear workshop, right? 
It doesn't work that way. There's another Seinfeld episode about this. Kramer opens a make-your-own-pizza place, and of course it doesn't work out. It's a stupid idea, and it's an idiot running it. But uh, <laughs> the word of God is best served hot, prepared, and ready to eat, and hopefully easy to digest. And that's why we're in Nehemiah today. I love this passage. I really love the whole book. I'm thinking about doing Ezra and Nehemiah in the new year. Uh, but this particular scene is notable mostly for this, this elevated view of Scripture, right? And that's what makes it a perfect passage to support this goal that we have, this vision of being biblical. And just to set the stage, you know, the entire story of Nehemiah takes place right at the end of the exile. And some of the Jews have finally returned home to the promised land, and they've rebuilt something of the temple, right? And, and they've, they've, uh, the city walls of Jerusalem have been completed at this point, but they're, it's a relatively small crowd, right? And, and they're surrounded by enemies still, and the city has kind of been reassembled in haste. And there's a wall, yes, and, and, and the beginnings of a temple, but the, the rest of the city itself is still kind of pretty much in ruins at this point. Uh, There's very few homes. It's not the coziest place to live. There's a long way to go, you know. Uh, They need more gentrification to straighten it out at this point. But but, but here, in chapter 8, as the wall's finally been wrapped up, the people gather together, and they ask Ezra to please break out the word. They have this hunger for the word. The ambiance isn't great, but they have a hunger, right? They're desperate, so they want the word. And that's what he does. He, he brings the book of the law out, which is the only scripture up to this point, really, right? And, and he starts reading it. And he reads it all morning. And verse 4 specifies that they built a wooden platform for this purpose. Now, to the best of my knowledge, this is perhaps the first recorded pulpit in history. Uh, but the whole thing basically takes the shape of a camp meeting because there's no formal meeting place for such a large gathering. Uh, so they basically gather in the street right there in front of the city gate, Uh, Verse 5 tells us that everyone stood for the reading, like we do with the gospel, except that they stood for five whole books, and they're not the short ones, you know. That takes some kind of commitment. You guys would fire me if I pulled a stunt like that, I think. If you can imagine me going up here for the gospel reading, deciding I'm going to read all four gospel accounts, right? (laughs) But that's basically what Ezra does, and he's, he's suffering with him. He's standing too, right, through this whole process. And I would say it sounds a little like LVP when we're doing our gospel readings, except verse 6 says that the crowd started shouting amen right in the middle of the readings, and they've got their hands in the air one minute, and then everyone is bowing, and everything. it's far too Pentecostal. This was an energetic, enthusiastic, not particularly Presbyterian type of meeting. Uh, this is not the frozen chosen. These people are amped to hear the word of God, and this scene is it's arguably the, the climax of the book. Uh, more stuff happens, but the reading of the word is sort of the pinnacle moment. And it ends up leading to repentance and more worship and rejoicing. And we don't have time to read all of the resulting effects today. Uh, we can cover those chapters if we do Nehemiah in the new year. But I, I want you to see that the change begins in the people with the word of God. People are transformed by scripture. Now, you could hear that and think, well, that's great. We need to pass more Bibles around, you know, toss some of those mini New Testaments around the office and maybe leave them in the break room and uh, maybe stick a Gospel of John in the bathroom stalls and um, eventually Scripture just sitting around will, will change things, you know. If I post a new verse on Facebook every day, you know, if more athletes would put John 3.16 on their eye black, right, you know, 
uh, people will receive the scripture almost by osmosis, right? And for, you know, just get it out there. And, you know, for the record, this doesn't typically work great, um, does it? And it's not how it plays out in Nehemiah 8 either. What, what I like about this passage is that the word is not just tossed to the people like candy at a parade. It's much more intentional. He's not slopping the hogs. You know, this is much more like a fine restaurant. You know, if I feed scraps to my dog when George is not looking, I don't arrange it real nice on a plate and put a garnish on there or anything like that, right? They wouldn't appreciate it, you know? I toss it instead on the floor and I say, here, dummies, right? And that's what I say. The kids can vouch for that. And they don't mind being called that. Um, but I'm basically tossing them garbage, right? And sometimes I toss them coffee beans, even though they're not supposed to have caffeine. And um, they eat it up every time because presentation is not exactly a high priority for them. Digestion, you know, there, there aren't as many questions there. Animals are like that. I, I'm old enough to remember going to the Philadelphia Zoo and sitting in the bleachers for feeding time in the big cat house. It was the best thing they had at the zoo. The animals were pacing back and forth, and they start roaring, and it's kind of freaky, and it's awesome, you know? And then the zookeepers would come, and they would just toss slabs of red meat into the cages, and the lions and tigers went crazy, and it was great. And, of course, they later decided this was too violent and upsetting, and they closed that exhibit down the same way they ruined everything else at the zoo. Um, But that's how we feed animals, right? Just throw it down and they'll eat. They're not that picky. But you would never do that to human beings in a restaurant, not if you wanted them to come back. And if the word of God is the main course at church, it seems like we should probably make an effort to serve it in an appropriate fashion, right? Our primary goal as the church, item number one of our vision is to be biblical. But there's a reason why in our vision statement we chose to emphasize verse 8. Because being biblical... I mean, that should be a given for any church. I know it's not. But we want to go that extra mile and deliver the word of God in a palatable, attractive, and easy-to-digest format. In other words, our goal is to be hospitably biblical. So the vision goals have significant overlap here. Part of being hospitable is making the scriptures clear. I want to look again just at those last couple of verses, 7 and 8 here. It says, also, Yeshua... Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You'll notice we did not include verse 7 in our uh, vision statements uh, for the simple <laughs> reason that those names are too hard for all but trained professionals, but... The reason those names are in here, why Nehemiah records them, is that he's giving credit where credit is due. Ezra's up there preaching. He's proclaiming the the actual Torah, the book of the law. But throughout the morning, these other guys, these Levites, are busy explaining. In other words, the word of God is not just dropped on these folks. It's carefully, thoroughly explained and interpreted. Confusion is cleared up. Words are defined Context is given. This is expositional commentary, essentially a sermon with also follow-up Bible studies happening simultaneously. Why such emphasis on this? Because the word of God means nothing if people don't understand it. 
Now, on one hand, that's obvious, right? If somebody, if somebody gives me directions to some place, but they do it in Mandarin, like, what good is that to me, right? I won't understand it. I can't apply it. So what am I supposed to do with that? So, of course, understanding is critical. Others would argue that understanding isn't everything, I suppose, you know, uh, and, and that's true to an extent. You know, if I don't want my three-year-old to play in the street or touch the stove, I don't explain all the details to them. I say no, and I spank them for disobeying, right? Uh, they don't need to understand all of the reasons, right? So I, I don't want to imply that understanding has to be complete. You, you don't need to understand all the symbolism, for instance, in Revelation, right? It's enough to know when you read that book that Jesus wins in the end. That's probably an important key thing to hold on to. And I do think there's value in reading the Bible, even if you only understand some of it. But the fact is that the Bible itself places a very high priority on understanding it. The word understanding appears hundreds of times in Scripture, and it's tightly connected with wisdom. Uh, Understanding is mentioned nearly 200 times in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets and in the wisdom literature, over 40 times in Proverbs alone. Understanding is how the the writer of Proverbs says is how God built and sustains his creation with understanding. Uh, It's what separates the wise man and the fool, and it's something that is to be desired. Jesus frequently asked his disciples if they understand what he's saying, and sometimes he gets rather frustrated by their lack of understanding what he's saying. Paul talks about understanding in nearly all of his letters. He equates understanding with having the mind of Christ. Well, likewise, understanding is the primary theme of this entire passage in Nehemiah 8. The word appears four times in eight short verses. And part of what's interesting about it is that this is a self-selecting group in this crowd, right? Verse 1 says it was all the people that gathered together. But verse 2 says that the assembly is made up of men and women, and I assume quite a few children are there. But the emphasis is that everybody who's there is people who could understand what they heard. Verse 3 reiterates the point. It says that this crowd was made of people who could understand. They're here because they can understand. And yet, for such an understanding crowd, verse 7 and 8 indicates that they needed further help. So 13 guys go out to answer questions and help the people understand. So even the people who can understand need help to understand. Now, it's maybe hard to appreciate this so many years removed, but like, how many of you enjoy reading Shakespeare? Well, all right, I was going to say, you know, other than Ruth, but yeah, there's a handful, that's good. (laughs) Does the language come naturally? No. I mean, unless you're a literary whiz, it probably doesn't, right? I, I love Shakespeare, I really do. I don't read it so much, but I love watching the movies. But most of the time, I don't... I don't get through it the first time and actually understand what's happening. Like, I love Henry V, but it's largely because I've seen it like ten times at this point. So now I know what's happening in all the scenes. I've got it now. But, you know, okay, so that's 500 years ago. You know what's even harder is uh, Chaucer. Uh, Alyssa's been reading the Canterbury Tales. I'm, I'm assuming that's a modern translation. Probably they've cleaned up some of the language for you. I don't know, probably, right? It's still kind of confusing at points, isn't it? A little bit, Yeah. Like 600 years now, right? That's a a big language gap, right? 
You know, not only that, but the cultural shift is pretty dramatic too, right? It's a weird story. All the weird stories in Canterbury Tales, right? It's in English, but it feels foreign, right? So I want you to bear in mind is that this law that Ezra is reading to the people is already 1,500 years old. And because of the exile, it's not been regularly read for probably nearly a century at this point in the lives of these people. So this law is going to feel fairly foreign to these listeners. I mean, they have a common Jewish background, uh, most, but in spite of that, most of them had grown up in Babylon, Right? So at best, they're speaking, they might speak some Hebrew, but they're speaking it as a second language after Akkadian. Besides which, the cultural distance would feel even greater. And you can see that even in our context. Like, think about immigrants that come to this country, right? How long does it take for an immigrant family to assimilate? Like one generation, maybe? Maybe two? Like by generation three, most immigrant families have lost any trace of an accent, and some are already, you know, like they've served in, the, in, in their new country in combat and everything else, right? Like they are full-fledged Americans by then. And, and all that is to say that it doesn't take long to lose touch with your roots, and this was certainly true for the Jews returning from exile after 70 years. They, they probably still know some Hebrew, but they're, culturally they're pretty much Babylonian in a lot of respects. And what that means is that even intelligent people people of understanding could still use a little help. Someone to fill in the details and speak God's word into the current context. And that's what happens here. Verse 8 is this critical verse because it explains how they did it. It says that they read clearly and they gave the sense. And the end result is that the people understand and they are changed. Understanding requires not only clarity, but the sense. In other words, we need to know what the text literally and technically says, but we also need interpretation, what the ESV calls the sense, and some translations call the meaning of the text. In short, the word of God needs to be taught, and teaching the word means knowing the people that you're teaching. And it means meeting them where they are. It's not enough to explain what the text meant in ancient Israel under Moses. They need to know why it's relevant right now, today, for them. Reading with clarity means knowing the scripture, but giving the sense requires knowing your audience. And that takes work. There's a difference between understanding words on a page and knowing what to do with them. Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So we need an understanding that is external to us, that's not independent. We need an understanding that's not our own. Now, I've been teaching a class on apologetics at Excelsior's homeschool co-op, and we've been talking about how personal autonomy is uh, probably the biggest idol of our age. Uh, everyone thinks that they're a law unto themselves, personally, ethically, morally, intellectually. Uh, but we've been talking about how all wisdom and all understanding comes from God, and true understanding means having the mind of Christ. But to have that understanding, to have the mind of Christ, means we need to be taught. We can't get there on our own. Now, someone may object and say, Pastor, aren't the scriptures supposed to be clear? Like, wasn't that the point of the Reformation, to put the word back into the hands of the people, remove the need for experts to explain everything, you know, sola scriptura, all that. Like, yes, 
Yes, that's true. Uh, the basics of the gospel are simple enough that even an untrained layman, even Philly natives, can understand the most important parts of the scripture. Theologians call this doctrine the perspicuity of scripture, apparently with no sense of irony. <laughs> perspicuity was George's favorite word I learned at Westminster. But yes, the basic gospel is clear enough. If the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to understand it, ultimately we need the Holy Spirit to teach us to understand the word of God because he's the author, but he's also the interpreter of his own work. But here's the funky part of all that. The funky part is that the Holy Spirit chooses to work through the ministry of mere mortals. Think of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, right? Back in Acts 8 that we covered many, many months ago. The Ethiopian has the scripture, right? He's reading Isaiah. Philip gets whisked by the spirit and just dumped there next to his chariot, and he's running alongside, right? And Philip says, hey, you understand that book? And the Ethiopian says, how can I? Nobody's explained it to me. Was the Ethiopian stupid? Was God's word just not perspicuous enough? No. God doesn't typically do what we think maybe he should do there. He doesn't, he doesn't give the Ethiopian a miraculous ability to understand the text. Instead, he chooses to miraculously send Philip there, but then Philip very unmiraculously explains the text and then baptizes him. Like, even in that scene, the focus is not on the miracle, but on the very ordinary work of one believer explaining the gospel to somebody else. That's how Jesus chooses to build his church. I don't know why, but that's what he chooses to do. He even works through the preaching of the word by guys like me. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. Question 155 is, how is the word made effectual to salvation? And the answer is this. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them into Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. In other words, what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching is used by the Holy Spirit to bring understanding to people and to change their lives. Jesus doesn't usually do grand miracles or write words in the sky or anything like that. He uses what we call the ordinary means of grace, word, prayer, and the sacraments, but primarily the word. The table is vitally important, but the word itself is the main course. And this is coincidentally why the reformers, even in their building design, signaled that the preaching of the word was central by putting the pulpit in the center of the church. Uh, they were talking about this at the Quakertown conference just uh, last week. I don't think it's sinful to put the pulpit to the side. I mean, that's what we've done, right? But uh, they were correcting. I think we were trying to correct a lower view of the table in a lot of churches. But they were trying to correct the Roman theology of the mass where the bread and the wine are literally the, and physically uh, Jesus, right? And uh, they have to keep him central, right? Or they'll get in trouble. Uh, but in the process of doing so, they downplayed 
the preaching of the word. And the reformer said, no, God's word is central. Jesus says it can't be broken. Peter said it is more sure than even seeing Christ transfigured before them, right? Hearing is better than seeing, according to Peter. The word is central to everything, so they moved the pulpit to the center. And actually, this passage even seems to illustrate that a little bit, too, because you'll notice in that verse where it says that they've built this platform for Nehemiah. He's standing up there, and he's in the middle. He's got 13 guys up there, seven on one side, six on the other. So he's kind of central, giving the word here. Um, All right. How can we apply this passage, practically speaking? Well, the passage is a calling, a call to understand the word of God. And so that needs to be our goal for ourselves and, of course, for others. Uh, It's not enough to simply preach and teach the word and talk about the word and even faithfully read the word. If we do so without understanding, it's fruitless. To be a healthy biblical church means being clear and giving the sense It means being hospitable even in how we handle God's word. It means knowing the word and knowing people. Because you can't give somebody the sense of anything without knowing them and the subject matter well enough to connect the two, right? Like I can't teach physics to a Lithuanian guy, not only because I don't know diddly squat about physics, but also because I don't know how to speak to a Lithuanian guy, right? Likewise, you've got to know the Bible and people if you want to talk to people about the Bible. Now, I know that pastors end up sharing a big part of this responsibility. I, I, it is incumbent on me and other pastors to make every effort to serve the main dish in a way that's easy to digest, which means connecting the text to the people who are listening. And maybe that means using OMAs, Right? Pastor Stone's obligatory movie analogies, right? Why do those work? Because you watch movies. You watch TV, too. And some of you waste time on Facebook and Twitter, and some of you enjoy sports, and some of you listen to classic rock. I mean, it almost doesn't matter. Whatever it may be, almost anything can be a point of contact that will help you connect with the scriptures and the sense of what the, 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 the scriptures mean to you right now. And I like to think that the countless hours that I spend searching for just the right illustration, that those are not wasted hours if they will help you get the sense. And even if the illustration I end up using only works here in this church, in this time, in this culture, for this group of people, if I can use that and do that without saying anything heretical, and I'm still rightly dividing the word of truth without compromising the clarity of the scripture, then I'm doing my job. And coincidentally, this is also why online church is not really church and doesn't really work. Because not only are you deprived of fellowship and the sacraments, but you are not sitting under a pastor who knows you. He's not thinking of you when he writes his sermon because he's never met you. Now, it's not wrong to listen to other sermons. I do it myself from time to time. I love Alistair Begg and some of these other guys, but it's not a substitute for sitting under the teaching of your own pastor and elders. Streaming a sermon is kind of like watching the Food Network. It's plenty of fun, and it might even give you an appetite, but not one of those meals you're seeing was made for you. So my job when I'm here is to connect God's ancient, eternal word 
with the people in this room today. And the methods are going to be different than they were in Nehemiah's day, but I think that's why no specifics are really recorded in Nehemiah, in, in verse 8 right there, because what gave the sense in that day is not what would give the sense now. You've got to understand your audience. Now, I, I will say I, this has been a passion of mine for years, and it's a large motivation of my ministry, has always been to convey heavy biblical truth on a level that the average Joe can understand. And that's because I've always thought of myself as an average Joe. I wasn't really Westminster material. I barely survived that place, but I do know that their theology was solid, and it's been my passion to help non-theologians embrace good theology. Call it theology for dummies led by the chief dummy. <laughs> I want to see people have understanding. But to do that, a pastor's got to know the word, and he's got to know his people. There's only one good shepherd, and the good shepherd knows his sheep, but even mediocre shepherds should try to make an effort to know their sheep. And one corollary of that is that I need sheep to be here sitting under that teaching. So I'm glad to have you. But once again, this doesn't stop with just pastors, beloved, or even with the elders. I know Ken's basically been doing theology for dummies in Sunday school. He's doing a great job of taking the, the shorter catechism and breaking it down for everybody into bite-sized pieces, and I appreciate that. Uh, but biblical understanding is not exclusively our job and arena because pastors aren't the only ones called on to explain the word of God sometimes, amen? This is a job for every Christian. Even in this passage in Nehemiah, it's not Ezra who does all the explaining, but these 13 Levites, right? Any Christian can do this, and I'm willing to bet most of you have. Now, how do you do that without a seminary degree? You do it because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Listen to what Paul says about Christian understanding. I've been referencing it a little bit along the way, but I'll read it here. 1 Corinthians 2 Beginning in verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but, uh, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Beloved, if we have the spirit, we have the mind of Christ. And that means you have wisdom and understanding that is not of this world. Not that you aren't still growing and learning, but you all have some spiritual wisdom and understanding. And you all have friends or children or siblings or classmates, people who may be intelligent but who don't fully understand God's word, and you can help them. You have an understanding that the most brilliant unbeliever does not in fact, you have something that even the Old Testament saints didn't have. Because since Pentecost, you have the Holy Spirit in a way that they did not. And because of that, you can be the Levites in this scene. Because for every sermon that gets preached, we probably need at least 13 people out there helping others to understand and apply it. 
I can only do so much in 30 minutes. I need you all to help. And believe it or not, if you are in Christ and have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to get started. Go back to the restaurant analogy. Think of it as serving God's word up with a smile. Don't throw it at them raw. Make it to order. Make it so that they can digest it. And then say, my pleasure, just like a (laughs) Chick-fil-A. You are equipped to make God's word clear and to give the sense. But if you want to do it effectively, you need to know the word and you need to know people. But you have the Holy Spirit. And the Reformation put the sword back into your hands, so use it. Focus on the main course. Focus on the word and on understanding the word and helping others to do the same. That is biblical, it is hospitable, and it will be fruitful as people's lives are changed. And that's a job for all of us, and it's a worthy goal. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, as always, we thank you for your word. More to be desired is your word than gold, sweeter than honey is your word. Lord, we thank you that the people in Nehemiah's day were so hungry for your word that they came out and demanded it. They asked for it and were willing to stand in the streets just to receive it. Lord, give us that kind of hunger. Lord, I thank you for those who are gathered here receiving the grace of your word. And I pray that they would receive this word, Lord, eager to understand and eager to help others understand. Lord, give us the mind of Christ. Give us understanding. And help us to use that understanding to help others. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.